looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Uh, This is our Thanksgiving episodes. This episode, we're recording a day before Thanksgiving. It will be released um, on Thanksgiving if you're listening to that. So we appreciate you guys uh, tuning in and listening. If you're traveling to some family's house or whatever you're doing, thank you for that. This week's guest is Tom McCrossan. Tom and I connected over social media. We we were friends on Facebook. We're connected on Instagram. And I've been seeing what Tom's been up to. And I've really been interested in this industrial flex base, all this commercial, the not so sexy side of commercial real estate, I guess we could call it. Um, But with that, though, Tom, thanks for coming in. Introduce yourself, please. Hey, good uh, morning, everybody. I am Tom McCross and I'm a Milwaukee, Wisconsin uh, native as well as uh, industrial warehouse investor. Uh, started uh, in 2010 with duplex, renovate duplexes with my wife, and we uh, we've transitioned into the industrial flex warehouse space, which is definitely a hot topic uh, amongst asset classes right now. I, I would uh, I would care to share. I, I just saw an article actually this morning that Amazon has doubled their portfolio of space in the last 24 months. Wow. Uh, I think 2020, the article said they they added 200 million square feet to their needs, and they added like 180 million square feet uh, in, as of September 2021. So personally speaking, I have 117,000 square feet in comparison. I am nowhere near that size. <laughs> but I started my journey in industrial space in 2019. So to gain 117,000 square feet in 24 months, plus or minus a couple months, I think we're well on our way to, to obtaining some five-year goals uh, a lot quicker, which uh, January of this year, I'd set a goal of a million square feet, which I slowly continue to push higher and revaluing what do those goals really mean. Because at the end of the day, if we're not making money and moving money, then the size of your portfolio doesn't matter. There's a lot of discussion right now of like, oh, how many units do you have? How much square footage in commercial space? It doesn't really matter if you're only making $5 a month. Right. If you're not moving the needle at all. Yeah. You're not moving the needle. Then then what's the point? Um, So in the 117,000 square feet that we have taken on deals where there's 50% vacancy, there's, there's roofs that need to be replaced. There's HVAC that need to be replaced. So there's a lot less moving parts in industrial than multifamily. Um, And that's kind of taken me away from the duplex portfolio and into larger space with less risk on our side as the landlord. Yeah. And, down to it. And, and we'll definitely get into that. You know, you and I, we had a really good co- phone call, I believe uh, Monday morning, we were kind of chatting about your journey, your adventure, what you're doing and how you kind of transitioned in. But I, I believe the listeners would love to hear, you know, you started in the duplex space, doing some small rehabs with your wife. You were saying, how do we make that transition into the industrial <laughs> flex space? And then, we're, and then we'll get into more on that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, 2010, we bought our first duplex on the concept of, uh, hey, let's, you know, we got married, let's buy a, uh, let's buy a house. Well, we don't really need a single family. It's just her and I, 
um, let's buy a duplex and have somebody help pay that mortgage. Uh, you know, and, and I guess that's the first realm of house hacking. Um, we never intentionally uh, bought the duplex on the basis of like, what kind of returns are we going to see? What's the money we're going to put into it? it? It was a comfort level thing, right? Right. So if you're making $50,000 a year as a married, newly married couple, if you can reduce some of that mortgage expense and gain some equity in it, uh, you know, we felt very comfortable. Let's, let's take this ride. Um, fast forward to 2012, my, I came home one day and my wife says, Hey, look at this duplex. It's five blocks away from where we live. And it's $35,000 listed on MLS. Wow. We don't know what, what happened, you know, 2008, 2009, um, didn't have any building experience, didn't have any construction knowledge. We're very interested to, to improve things ourselves. And, uh, and I said, what do we have to lose? We're 25 years old. You know, my wife has a nice paying job. I, I'm pretty ambitious and a risk taker myself. So, so we went all in. We took an offer. We made an offer. I, I think it was at the point, I don't know what the technical term for the offer, but it had like, you know, if someone countered, we automatically increased our offer. By the escalation clause. Yeah. Um, and so we, we went in $10,000 higher than list thinking that, Hey, we're making an all cash offer. I think that was well before uh, most investors, uh, you know, when you're getting started would take those kinds of risks of let's take right. all the cash we have and let's go buy this house that we can't live in. We can't rent it. We walk in, you can see from the front door to the back door, someone had demoed all the walls. The seller had the plan to turn it from a duplex into a single family. And then his uh, corporate job transferred him out of state. So he no longer could uh, take on this project and was just taking his loss at what it was. And it was our gain. So we renovated it. We learned a lot of things along the way. Fast forward again to 2019, a friend of mine who runs an electrical contracting business said, hey, Tom, do you, do you want to partner with me in a commercial warehouse? And I said, say what? what? What is that? How does it work? How are we going to find renters? Like, the, the building's a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars. Right. But you I just bought have, a $45,000 duplex and you go to a million. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like that jump is huge. Except for the fact 2012 to 2019, we completely cashed the improvements on the duplex. So we had no debt. We refinanced the duplex. We pulled $135,000 out. And that was my cash payment into the industrial building with my partner. So we both brought $135,000 to the closing table. We each owned 50% of the deal. And my partner had four tenants ready to move into the building. So we well, I'm going to stop you there real quick, Tom, just to, to touch base on this and expand it a little bit more. So this building was a million dollars. What was the square footage? And you said four tenants get up and moving. So does this mean the building was divided into four different sections? Uh, actually, the building was uh, a one tenant space that we subdivided to make four tenant spaces. It's uh, two. It's two buildings on one parcel. Uh, total is like eighteen thousand five hundred square feet, plus or minus a couple square feet, sitting on about two acres of space. So there's the uh, first value add point there. I want to say is you took a single tenant space and divided it into four tenants, which I would imagine improved. Uh, and increase the amount of cash flow or the rent that you could collect every month on month on this property. Yes, exactly. So, so commercial real estate really only has a value if there's income coming in because yep. most times commercial real estate, 
you're buying it based on an investment on an income generating asset. So in this case, we were buying a vacant building and had no income. There is still the value in commercial real estate of the actual structure that you're buying. You know, that there's a roof, there's HVAC, there's, there's walls built, there's office space. It's tangible thing that costs something to, to build. Yes. Correct. Correct. Uh, you know, and at that point, the broker that brought it to my partner and I, you know, he said, hey, this is a vacant building. Here's a performa that the broker created. Um, if you really are getting into commercial assets, you're going to want to create your own performa. We had no clue what we were doing. We took his word for what we could create based on his performa. Right. Uh, I can. It was your first one. Yeah. On the first one, we, we took a lot of what he was saying and, and it's worked out. Uh, him and I didn't have any knowledge, any experience in commercial real estate. It was all based on our relationships, our experience in construction, the people that we knew. And we formulated this, this plan. Let's buy a vacant building, subdivide, bring in four tenants, and let's create some income. So it, your, your electrician brought this deal to you. He kind of had a business plan in mind. He said, hey, let's go in 50-50 on this. How did he already have four tenants pre-selected and what did those tenants do? What type of tenants were they? How they occupy the space? Um, our key tenant is a uh, insurance restoration contractor and uh, he does work for them as a, as a subcontractor. So okay. electrician is a client to the general contractor, not client, but a vendor. Um, and over 15 years of doing business, they've, earned uh, you know a trust between the general manager of the local branch and uh, and my partner um, and the and the, con- the the restoration contractor had said to my partner Dan said hey uh, we're looking for more space and my electrician said hey we need space for our electrical business as well so what if we buy a building and you guys become our tenant Okay. And the restoration contractor said, yeah, we like that idea. And because of his relationship, it really formulated, uh, let's go find buildings that really fit your need. And, and that phrase will come back uh, full circle in a, in a few minutes as we continue to talk about my story and, and where I am today. But with that scenario of having the tenant, the relationship, my partner that's going to operate in the building as well, the restoration contractor knew two other people that wanted space uh, in that specific uh, city as well. So with those four tenants, you know, with my partner being uh, a tenant as well as an investor in the deal, mm-hmm. it really all came together and works really well. I can, I can say it's taught me a lot through the process. And, you know, when we go back to uh, talking about getting involved in your first deal, I highly recommend just take action. And that's exactly what happened with this industrial building. You know, I brought the idea back to my wife, who's a partner and and a a confidant. And, you know, we do a lot of things together. She'll never be in the the forefront. You'll never see her face on anything we do as a business. But she is a a sounding board. And uh, and she's always anti-partners leading up to this. And she knew who my partner who brought it to my attention was and and knew the name. And that made her feel comfortable. but again, you know, in 2012, when we bought that duplex, it was, let's go all in. Let's take all our cash. What do we have to lose? In this right. scenario, it was, well, we have the duplex. We're going to get debt on it. The concept, again, was, what do we have to lose? So what? We lose $130,000 on this industrial building. And 
and it and it puts a lot of stress on our our new marriage you know at that point we've been married for seven years or so like that and uh the mentality between us is let's take the cash and let's make it earn something more yeah so don't let it just sit in the bank let it do something for you so even though we lost cash flow on the duplex so let's say that duplex uh, was cash flowing eight thousand dollars a year because there's just not a lot of revenue after expenses and debt on a duplex. Yep. You know, it's two units, and in our market, it was like nine hundred dollars a two bedroom was the market rate rent. Um, so we took one hundred thirty thousand. We added, you know, roughly about fifty five hundred dollars a year in in mortgage and insurance, uh, mortgage and interest expense to. To the di- to the duplex deal, but on the flip side, so that five thousand dollars that we incur costs on the duplex, because we took that one hundred thirty thousand, put it in the industrial, we're earning twenty thousand dollars a year in cash flow, on a fifty percent split. So the cash flow, and it probably could be higher, but my partner and I like to keep cash in our deal just so. If an emergency comes up, like this year, we had to replace two rooftop units. It was $23,000. Wow. The other concept that I like to look at in big industrial warehouses is that we have large dollar amounts that are coming in the bank account every month. So if you think about a duplex that you have $1,800 of monthly income, well, what happens if you have to replace that furnace? There goes the whole month of cash flow, or oh, not even of cash flow, just of all income. Of all income, like your revenue, your $1,800 a month is wiped out for the next three months. So if your duplex generates $24,000 a year, you know, a furnace, three to $4,000, you know, depending on what your relationships are with vendors and investor friendly contractors, yep. you can get it lower and it could be higher just depending on your, your experience level of connecting with people. Um, where if you take that same concept and you look at an industrial warehouse, that's 18,000 square feet, uh, you know, our revenue on that's $240,000 a year. Now our commercial leases, the previous guest that Dante had on his podcast talked about triple net leases. So to talk about industrial warehouses is a great next step because all of our tenants, I shouldn't say all 90% of our tenants our triple net leases, meaning that if the monthly expenses or the annual expenses of the building go up, those tenants are paying for that expense. Yeah, let's, now, let's I, break that down real quick, though. So triple net kind of sem- segueing from last week's episode, the tenants are covering all of their expenses, taxes, insurance, and uh, mostly maintenance, correct? Yes, exactly. Snow, snow, landscaping, parking lot repairs, roof And obviously repairs. their utilities, they pay their own utilities. Yeah, they pay their own utilities. We separated, we didn't separate utilities. So we'll collect the utility bill as the landlord and we're yep. charging it back monthly based on square footage that's rented to each tenant. Makes sense. Um, it's the simplest way. I think depending on the users, it could be fair or it could be completely unfair. So if a user has 30% of the space that's being paid for, but they're using 90% of the power, there's probably a conversation and uh, in your lease negotiations need to identify, like, if we see a spike in power, we're going to come after, you know, we're going to have a conversation and it's laid out in our lease, uh, how we charge that extra back to that tenant who's using more power, whether right. that's gas, electric, <laughs> 
or water. Yeah. Um, in this specific city, uh, water bill is, is, uh, you know, between our, our properties, like 900, $900 a quarter. And one of the tenants uses a lot of washing water because they wash rags and they just do laundry. Right. Right. So when you took this building and you subdivided it over into four different sections for four different tenants, what did that entail? What did that cost look like? Cause now I kind of want to get into cost and return for you. <laughs> um, because we had never done it and because I had never really intentionally bought an investment property, um, to get a return, it was based on, Hey, if we take 130,000, we're going to use cash flow. Um, and we're just going to make this, you know, I, I think my partner and I were like, what is this going to cost? Like $40,000 to split into four suites, a little bit, multiply that by five and a year and a half of cash flow is what it really ended up costing us to split the building. But here we sit in year number three, um, sitting really well for 2023. Um, so the cash flow after debt, if we don't do any more capital expenditure projects, <laughs> whether that's paying off the, the cost incurred to subdivide the property or, or replacing rooftop units or having cash in the bank just for, for conservative uh, you know, risk tolerance, um, we should be able to split $50,000 a piece. So we'll have $100,000 cash flow come 2023. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, well, and you, get, you have to keep in mind that was your first deal. You guys were learning, yep. you were implementing exactly. you know, the business plan and now and we'll get into it in a minute, you've been able to take that and do that with other deals. So uh, anything else you want to wrap up on this deal, go ahead. And then I want to segue. Uh, we bought it for, just to recap, like what those numbers kind of look like. We bought it for $1.2 million, 20% down. So we did an 80% loan to value with a, a local bank. Um, if you don't have a relationship with a bank, I highly suggest you find a bank to gain that relationship. There are banks that will only loan based on relationship, and there are banks that will only loan based on, on the debt coverage service ratio. Um, from a risk tolerance perspective, there are also banks that will only loan if you have experience in a certain asset class. So the bank that I utilize, if I were to bring him a 100-unit multifamily deal and say, hey, Mr. Banker, I have this deal. At, you know, We're going to see cash flow of 20% cash on cash. And we're going to see an equity multiplier of seven over the next five years. He's going to say, Tom, what tells me that you can operate this deal? Where is your experience coming from? So on the very first industrial deal, we didn't have that experience, but the banker knew that me and my partner had a net worth double of what the value of the building was on a minimum. And because my partner has a business that generates, I have no idea what he even income wise has, but it's a lot higher than what I was making at the time. And, and when we bought it, I had a W-2 job. Um, so based on his income and my W-2 taxable income, we had enough income to offset the mortgage payment if none of our tenants ended up paying rent. So that was the risk on the, on the bank of why he loaned to us was because we had tenants in place. We had income from W-2 jobs. All of it comes back full circle to say, hey, where's that risk tolerance in that bank? Right. Um, so from there, that was the business model that we, uh, that not we, but I said, hey, I can do this again and again and again. Let's buy vacant buildings. 
meet tenants and fill the space. So fast forward, you know, 2020, I bought a duplex. The pandemic came. Nobody really wanted to do anything in commercial. I mean, there were deals being had. There were seasoned investors making deals happen. You know, 2019 was my first industrial deal. I wasn't going to go and, uh, and buy another commercial building um, just because I didn't know what was going to happen with the market. I knew leading up to that, to that duplex we bought in 2020, we closed like March 7th or something like that. And March 9th, the world shut down. Yeah. So from uh, not really a seasoned investor at that point, it was super nerve wracking. Like, again, what's the worst that could happen? Okay, we lose everything. My mantra is, what's the worst that could happen? We lose everything. Everything we've done, we gain knowledge and experience. So if today I lost 100% of what I have, we have the process, we have the knowledge, we have the experience. Let's go start over and do it again. Yeah, you could probably do it faster this time now that you have that knowledge and experience. Correct. And I think experience comes confidence. You know, leading into 2021, when I started finding financial partners for, for the down payments, I don't know if I had 100% uh, experience required, but I had the confidence to say, I did a deal in 2019. We bought a vacant building. We leased it up. And we stabilized it within 24 months. That $1.2 million building today at an eight cap would be somewhere between 1.8 to $2 million sale price. Yeah. With income in place. Um, you know, we're we're getting to the point, you know, our leases on that first deal were five years from 2019. So at this point, if we were to sell it as an investment to another investor. Uh, there's going to be questions of, well, how long are the leases? Are we able to get extensions on them? You know, and if, if I'm just looking for cash, I'll be like, no, you can, you can deal with it when you buy it, you know, talk to the tenants after you close on it and get lease extensions. So some of those lease extensions add risk to the deal. Yeah. And I want to touch on that too, because the more lease that's left, the more time on that lease is going to create more value. So kind of going back to that episode with triple net leases is, you know, these leases can be 15, 20 years long. And the more they have on that, the safer, the safer net you have of having a tenant there for longer term and less chance of a turnover. But if you're saying, you know, I've got five-year leases, 2019. So in 2024, let's say we sell this in 2023, you only have one year left on two, three, four tenants. That's going to pose a high level of risk. So therefore the property is going to be worth less. But if you take action, get lease extensions up front and maybe extend those for another five to 10 years, that's going to have a little bit more stability to the future borrower or future buyer. So therefore the value is going to be worth more for that building. So I think that's pretty important. That's a, uh, an important thing to think about when we're talking about commercial, industrial, flex space, any type of commercial lease, whoever you're leasing out to, the, the terms of the lease really make or break the deal. And that's going to create the value for it as well. Yes. And uh, we know that if we were going to sell the deal, we'd have to get the lease extensions to get the max value of course. because we have the relationship with the tenants. I think in 2021 here, I bought three deals. Each one gradually got bigger and, and stronger in value as well as, as lower in risk. So, uh, so 2019, we bought the first deal. It was vacant building. We leased it up. We've done improvements. We've 
improved management. So not only do I buy the industrial warehouse space, but we are the management company that manages the asset that we add to the portfolio. Um, so our value proposition, number one is we buy buildings for tenant needs. So as we develop relationships with tenants, we'll go buy a building for whatever size need they have. And number two is because we are the owner on, on the deal, as well as the management company, we're much more vested to ensure that we're managing the, the maintenance for our tenants more so than any third-party property management company. And I don't mean to offend any property managers that may be listening to this, but I was one. And at this point, I care 10 times more about my asset than any employee could ever care. Of course, yeah, the invested interest. When you have ownership, when you care about the, the end result, when you have money on the line, your mentality is much different. And no matter what the culture of the business is, no matter how much you feel you're part of the deal, if you don't have money on the table, there are things you're going to make a decision on based on, hey, we hit the budget or, hey, the cost for the budget went up, but what do we care because the tenant's paying for expenses anyway? The lower that we can keep those expenses on the property, the better it is for the tenant relationship over the long term. If over a five-year period, we continue to see expenses go up. Now, granted, we're in a hyperinflation state and cost of maintenance and cost of labor and cost of materials are, are continuing to go up. But better example is if we're repairing parking lot and I only get one quote that's $25,000 and go, what do I care if it's 25 grand? My tenants are paying that repair bill. But if I call, make the effort and call two, three, four more contractors and have conversations from owner to owner. So you're finding contractors that, that are an owner operator, not just dealing with a salesperson. You could probably find someone to do it for 15,000 or 17,000 or, or develop the value of, Hey, we're going to have hundred thousand dollars in parking lot repairs in 2023. How do we position all of our portfolio to have it done at once? It may all not be all done in the same week, but we're working with the same contractor and there's some volume that can be gained. Those conversations are not something that just comes because, hey, my boss said, go get three quotes. It comes from, hey, this is my building. I wanna ensure that we're getting the best repair possible and that we're getting the best value from the contractor as possible. Now, there are things that we'll go pay more money for just so that it's not a time suck. You know, I have a third party maintenance company that I can call if I'm in a pinch because I can't be everywhere at the same time. But those are some costs that come into play that you have to weigh what your time is worth and what the value of that task at hand is. Yeah, no, that's good. I like that. Now, moving on to this year, you said you bought three deals. Talking about kind of those three deals in tandem, what were you looking for exactly? What type of returns? What type of projects? And tell us a little bit about. I, what those deals entailed. So I think to go into a little more depth. So in 2019 was the first deal. And I keep going back to that because once you have a deal and you've controlled the deal, you know, you've acquired the deal, you've ran the deal, you understand the deal in and out, you can replicate a lot of those processes that you've earned, you know, gained experience on and duplicate it into the next, you know, the next 10 deals. Yep. Use that um, same model. And, and so because of that experience, I had bumped into a, um, 
an attorney that I used to work with um, and kind of explained to him, hey, you know, I'm really involved in buying real estate and I just bought an industrial building uh, and I'd really like to gain momentum and use other people's money uh, to buy additional deals. And he says to me, you know what? I think we should meet. It's, it's an attorney that I had a relationship with, uh, you know, 10 years ago, but reconnected, uh, you know, 2018, 2019, still had a W-2 job, was real interested in the whole concept of let's go flip some houses, let's get some private money. Um, so through the transition of the pandemic, it went from conversations of short-term lending to, hey, Tom, some of my friends would actually be interested to meet with you on the basis that as the owner, you're gaining equity and you're heavily involved in the day-to-day -day operations. Because from our business model, any investor could go find a commercial broker, go find an industrial one tenant building, triple net lease, where they don't have any management required. Right and hire a third party property management company to manage the deal for anything that happens between, you know, Monday through Friday. The investor doesn't have me as a partner, doesn't have me for their vested interest to ensure that the contractors coming on site aren't squeezing us for additional dollars when nobody's watching. And I, again, this goes back to when you have third party property management that is only in it for the money, meaning that a property management company is getting hired on a percentage of the revenue of the deal. And then they get, you know, they charge you for maintenance. They charge you for leasing. They charge you for, um, you know, they may charge for evictions and, you know, there's a laundry list of things that they want to make money on. Right. And granted there's time and there's tasks and there's, there's, there's things that have to be done. And so because their mentality or their goal is to make money, it's not really to ensure that you make money. Now, there are some property management companies out there that, that do have that, um, you know, hey, we set the budget. So if we go over budget, we're going to start taking off our management fee. I've heard that conversation too. However, so going back, the attorney introduced me to his friends. They were really interested in uh, my involvement in these deals. Um, so 2020, I started looking at commercial deals and every analysis that I put together, I would send to the attorney. Say, hey, I got another deal. Do you think this works? And not only is he a partner, but he I would consider him very much a mentor as well. Not from... The real estate side. I mean, he's a real estate attorney and he knows real estate inside and out, but more so also from the financial side. You know, he's very conscious of the, the making money on your money concept. So if, if we buy a deal and we're not seeing at least 10% cash on cash, it's not a deal for this group. Yeah. You know, we're not buying six caps. We're not buying seven caps. We're not buying eight caps. You know, before we can even make an offer, it has to look like it would be an eight cap at closing. So I started sending him all my deal flow. He starts introducing me to people that he knows. Um, so the first two deals I bought this year, the, the first one was with my very first partner. We split the equity 70-30. Um, we set up the operating agreement that if I was going to take 30% equity, 
the partner who had brought all the money, I wouldn't get any cash flow until they're paid back. This goes back to the concept of, hey, Tom, we're interested to do deals with you, but you don't have a ton of experience. So let's reduce our risk by verifying that we get all the cash flow up until the point that we're paid back on the initial investment. Right. So getting so, creatives make deals happen. Correct. And that was really how my my attorney partner presented it. And I, I was like, this is fantastic. I can actually get some deals done. I have confidence that we're going to get to the table with the money. Because I think when you start analyzing deals and you start making offers, everyone's concern is where's the money coming from? Right, right. And, and you can listen to as many podcasts as you want and read as many books. And everyone says, make sure you find the money first. But if you have an awesome deal, especially in this environment of, of economical scale, the money will find you if you have the deal. So I just continuously built up that confidence. Like, let's understand underwriting. Let's understand analysis. Let's understand what we're going to do with these deals. And so the creative juices of, you know, house flipping um, really come into the same concept in flipping industrial buildings. Our timeline is a lot longer. So we haven't officially exited any deal yet. But the concept is, let's go find a building that needs a new roof, doesn't have any tenants, needs to be updated for the office environment, parking lot, exterior painting, siding, windows. And let's, how do we maximize the asset value? And how, and to do that is maximizing the income for the property. Right. So the very first deal we bought this year was a 15,000 square foot building that had 50% rented space. Only uh, 50% of the building was rented. And I looked at this building a year prior and it was fully rented. That 50% that was vacant when we bought it was rented by a guy who is a $2 a square foot gross renter. And the biggest fear that we had was how do you change a guy who's paying $2 a square foot on 8,000 square feet and get him on a triple net lease without scaring him away? Right. Like that expectation, that mentality, I hadn't gone through the process. So it was a huge risk of the opportunity. And others would say, Tom, you took a bigger risk taking vacant space than income generating space. And I would beg to differ and say, yes, that may be true. However, we had an easier time fixing the space up and marketing it vacant than if there was already a tenant in place. Mm. I didn't want the confrontation. I didn't want, I didn't want uh, there to be this negativity going into the first, you know, my second deal with having to deal with a tenant that's on a gross lease and trip, changing them to triple net. So we've ended up buying the building, we bought it for 425,000 with $50,000 of CapEx budget that the bank would finance. So theoretically we bought it with $475,000 value, 20% down payment. Um, and that $50,000 that the bank lent us was to replace part of the roof, paint the exterior and get the inside functional so we could lease it up. Within 90 days, we had one new tenant that took 3000 square feet. And within six months of buying it from March of 2021, we had the building fully leased. And just this week, I had to ask a tenant who was in non-compliance with the city ordinances to vacate. So we just had a mutual termination of lease uh, on Wednesday this week or Monday this week. Um, so I lost $1,700 a month in revenue, but 
But again, it goes back to that creative flow of, hey, we may lose $1,700 of rent on a tenant that we inherited, but by moving tenants around within the space, we're actually going to gain $1,000 a month in revenue. So with these tenants you guys are placing in, how are you guys finding these tenants? Are they relationships you already have with tenants or through people? Are they brokers that you hire to rent out these spaces? How are you getting these units occupied? Majority is relationship-based. Posting on uh, LoopNet and Crexy.com. Okay. The two big commercial um, spaces. Yeah. Commercial space websites. I have not hired any commercial broker to represent us on a landlord basis, but part of my business model is to continuously connect with commercial brokers in our market to let them know who we are, what we do, and how we're handling uh, value to their clients. So with that network of people, goes back to relationships. Um, anytime we have some vacancy, I can call 15 brokers and let them know what we have. Because I am adamant to not be a broker myself because I want those relationships with commercial brokers because they know way more people than I could ever find. Yeah. We talked about this. We were saying how, you know, for, for you, it doesn't make sense to be a broker because there's X amount of brokers in your market. And if you're one of them, you're now seen as competition to the, all those other brokers. So instead of being a broker yourself, taking a, you know, a small commission on each deal you do, you can rather have a relationship with X amount of brokers who all have relationships that can bring you more deal flow and more tenants. Exactly. Exactly. I was looking for a way of, you know, I come from a sales background. And so in acquisitions, even though you're a buyer, and so it, it, it's completely reverse psychology type scenario. So in order for us to acquire things, we need deal flow. And how is the quickest way to get deal flow is to meet these brokers who all have buildings that they either have listed or no sellers who are willing to sell something. Right. And so by having multiple different brokers, you know, a relationship with, um, it's opening up a lot of opportunities that we wouldn't have been able to find on our own. Yeah. Brokers um, are marketing machines at the end of the day. And, you know, we, in the markets that we operate in, we thought about doing some off market campaigns to get to these sellers, but at the end of the day, the brokers have already been talking with them. They've already been adding value to them. And the seller is going to go with the broker when it's time to sell because they know the broker is going to bring them the top value based on the relationships yep. they have. They're a key piece of this business. Yes, exactly. And and not only do they have are they marketing machines and, and they may know of buildings that, you know, a lot of brokers will have pocket listings. Mm-hmm. They'll have sellers that, hey, hey, Mr. Joe, you know, we met like a year ago. And uh, if you ever find a buyer who would buy my building just from an investment standpoint and understands that it needs a new roof and we need to replace the roof, you know, the HVAC system and a parking lot and paint the outside, but I'm not going to spend that money. So you need to find a, a buyer who is interested to take on all of those projects. Um, from the conversations I've had with brokers, we're a very unique buyer in the sense that we would take that investment in a heartbeat. Right. So you're willing to take a deal with some hair on it. And that's where you guys are adding the value there. Yep. Or again, it goes back to that vacancy. You know, the, the more vacant space in a building, the higher the risk. But if we can buy an eight cap with 50% vacant space, that that's like a huge win for us. Cause that vacant space immediately adds revenue and it immediately adds net operating income which is the whole premise of value of commercial real estate. Yeah, it's so, very important how that value is based. 
you take your total revenue minus your expenses, gives you your net operating income. Yep. Pretty pretty common formula. And then if you take that that net operating income and you divide it by, you know, you want an eight cap, divide that by 0.08, and that's going to give you the value of what your real estate is. Right. You so you I mean? guys will buy a vacant space that's an eight cap based off of the income. And then you know, if it's half vacant and then you add a tenant to that space, you add value, you improve it. And now maybe let's say that income is at, instead of 20,000 a year, it's at 40,000 divided by that eight cap. There you go. There's all that value you've added. You know, that's obviously easy math in a scenario like that. Correct. Correct. So that very first, you know, so 2019, I bought my first deal. 2021, we bought a deal in March of this year that was 50% vacant, uh, had no outside space, had no parking outside, is in a municipality that that has a lot of contractor type warehouse space. This was perfect. We have a lot of relation. My partner and I, we have a lot of relationships with contractors. This would be an easy one for us to 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 acquire and uh, and lease up. So and all the funds you're getting are from your attorney's friends, the investors that he's introduced you to. Correct. Yes, but on this one, it was my partner on that very first deal. Okay. So my partner on the first deal was interested to, to partner with me on a 70% equity, 30, you know, 37. Yep, until he gets his full payback. Until he gets his full payback back. So we got fully leased. We, we ended up uh, buying it when there was snow on the roof. So I, I actually didn't have a, a clue that the roof needed to be replaced. So uh, tip for everybody, if you're going to buy a building, wait till the snow melts. Mm. Because a roof on a 15,000 square foot building is not $2,500. <laughs> Much more expensive, I can imagine. We only replaced 5,000 square feet and uh, it was $22,000. So it was roughly about a 50 square flat roof that we replaced, um, which again, it goes back to relationships. So I just worked diligently to find contractors that, you know, I think in this market are hard to get correspondence from communication is key and follow-up. Um, and this guy is a subcontractor to some, some bigger commercial roofing contractors. And because of my relationships with other contractors, they were all buddies and, and could vouch for him. Because if I met him without knowing a referral, I probably wouldn't have hired him. Right. Doesn't have a sales process, doesn't have confidence in his abilities, his work, because he's a roofer. It'd be no different than hiring a, a painter who decides to go off on his own and sell paint jobs. Like he's a painter. He's, he's not a business person. Right. Right. He's, so, he's good at his trade, not the actual backside of business. Right. Correct. And so a lot of what we get done is with those people that are workmen, not uh, back-end experts in, in sales and, and looking professional. And so a lot, I get people all the time like, Hey Tom, you know, a lot of people who can you refer me to? And I'm like, eh, you know, the guys that I use, you're not going to want to put up with the headaches that I do. <laughs> right, right. It's different clientele for different types of people. I totally get that. Exactly. So 2021, we bought this 15,000 square foot building. We're fully leased, minus the fact that we just had to uh, ask a tent to move out. And the, uh, the main reason we had him to move out is not money. It was because he wouldn't go for occupancy with the city. So anytime you rent space in commercial buildings, the village, the city... The municipality wants control of who that tenant is. So commercial buildings have different zones, different zoned um, rights to how you use that building. Yep. Uh, there, there's businesses like along your main drags in the city that 
that are focused on retail, that retail building could never be a, a manufacturing type facility. And the same thing goes for my industrial buildings. They can never have a use of retail. And this tenant had subleased some space to, to a hairstylist, to a tanning salon, like just these random smaller businesses that said, I'll rent an office from you. Well, they didn't go for occupancy and the village didn't get any, didn't give permission for those businesses to operate. Right. So the last straw was when the village started fining me as the landlord uh, for failure for the tenant to have occupancy. And I no longer had any more patience for him to continue to tell me I'm going for occupancy. It says right. in your lease, you have to abide by the laws. And he wasn't. Right. So um, you broke the lease. Therefore, you know, mutual contract, you know. Correct. And so he was looking at, uh, you know, there was the liability of being charged with the remaining balance of his lease. He had 18 months left. I said, you can either fight me on this, you know, termination of your lease, or you can mutually agree to terminate and we'll just part ways. We're not going to try to get you for the balance of your lease. We're not going to get you for any money to, to fix the space that you destroyed. We just want out. Right. Um, so that was the first deal of 2021. The next one was another uh, industrial flex space building, 50% vacant. It was 12,000 square feet sitting on four acres of land. So our concept in that one was, well, the acreage is where the value add is. Yes, we can get additional rent from renting the, the office space that's left. But I saw the opportunity to say, hey, let's put up a 50,000 square foot building. So I went back to my attorney partner. I gave him the lay of the land of what we want, what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, and some of his friends were a little, little gun shy on the specific area of where this property was. So we've kind of changed our focus. It was a $400,000 purchase, 450,000 for 12,800 square feet. 50% of it was rented with gross leases. We've gotten the rest of the vacancy leased up this year on triple net leases. And I've even transferred a gross lease tenant to a triple net basis. So in commercial leasing, a lot of times businesses don't want to incur the cost of moving. So that's a value proposition from our side to say, hey, let me help you reduce some expenses over the long term, but at the same token, improve the building that you're renting in. So this property has a parking lot that needs to be replaced. The front of it needs to be painted. So there's just outside improvements that the previous landlord was not doing. And there's two acres of trees and overgrowth that we can clear and have outside storage space. So all value add uh, opportunities to increase the value of the property. The location of the property I've learned is an area that doesn't see a lot of investors interested because you end up getting tenants that aren't so credit worthy. So it turns into being just a cash cow um, from a leasing, from a from an ownership perspective. Right. But everything we've added value to on the property doesn't necessarily add. Uh, so we've added income, but we aren't really adding value to a sale price because the market that it's in dictates that, you know, no one's buying anything over $45 a square foot. Right. Right. So we, we bought it for 450,000. We have our revenue with expenses up to 110,000 but we're not going to see a valuation 
of seeing a million dollars at a 10 cap. So if our NOI is $80,000, you'd say, oh, Tom, you could sell that at a 10 cap for 800,000. But if you took $800,000 divided by the square footage of the building, even if we cleared the outside land, you're, you're probably not going to see, you know, the eight cap valuation of 1.1, 1.2 million. So you're more, uh, you could say, so to speak, comp constrained, so to speak. Would that make sense? Yeah, yeah a- absolutely. Because there was a building next door that went up for sale and, and we tried to acquire it. But when you start looking at the underwriting, the analysis of it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to acquire it just to earn additional tenants. Again, it would add some value from a position that we'd have five acres under ownership, but we wouldn't be you know, it was a building that was completely vacant. We could add tenants, but we weren't going to see any equity in it. If we can't see equity on the cash being deployed, then there's no point of spending my resources to acquire it. Right. That makes sense. And how about that third deal you guys did this year? And then we're going to... Opposite uh, of whatever else I've done this year, we bought a 71,000 square foot class A building at an eight and a half cap. And the risk in that one was there was 4,000 square feet that was vacant. There was a tenant's lease who expires in January of 2022, and we have a tenant who has 30,000 square feet that that uh, leases expires in two years. So 55, 60% of the property was coming up in the next 24 months for vacancy. So in the first 30 days, I took I, I met with the, the first tenant whose lease expires in January of 2022. If I misspoke and said 23, I, I mean, January of 2022. Um, and we got them to commit to an, a six-year extension, nice. which, is, which is fantastic. <laughs> right. You're stabilizing that, that business. You're stabilizing that building. Right. The next tenant is continuously in conversation. The 30,000 square foot user wants the 4,000 square feet. And we just continuously have a conversation about what the market rate value is for rent. And what it would really comes down to is, uh, do you want to play ball with us or not? Right, right. What other plans do you guys have for that property? Because obviously it sounds like you're getting those lease extensions. So there's a little bit more certainty. We actually are discussing whether we refinance and take cash out or we just continue to operate as it is and have a long-term cash flow deal. Awesome. I love that. I like that a lot. And so we were able to acquire at the eight and a half cap plus the increase in, in rents over time. We're going to start to see 10, 11% cash on cash on a reduced risk opportunity of 71,000 square feet. Um, several exit strategies are to sell it at a lower cap rate or add additional square footage for a tenant that's growing. So we have the ability to add up to 20,000 square feet and stay within the municipality's green space requirements. Uh, in the industrial space. So a lot of times municipalities will put restrictions on how much of the building and parking lot can take up on the land that you own. So this municipality is 40% uh, of the land has to remain grass, trees, flower beds. Um, So with the current land that we have on the property, we could add 20,000 square feet. Oh, I like that. That's awesome. Well, let's uh, head over to our next section of the show called the Curious Cues. These are questions we ask all of our guests and we'll uh, get your answers for them. You ready? Perfect. Ready. Let's roll. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? AJ Osborne's. Yep. Um, and I don't even know the name of it. 
Um, but that's I think it's self storage income, I believe. Yeah, so I, I definitely like the context of the conversation that AJ has. So when you think industrial warehouse and you think self storage, there's a very blended strategy between the two. Yep. I personally think self storage has a lot more day to day, and I'm sure self storage operator would say that's not true, Tom. And I'm happy to connect. How about uh, biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? I think it's the confidence in knowing what I'm doing. When you're going before people that have long-term growth of net worth and, and a lot of liquidity, and you're looking for them to become partners, to have the confidence of what you're doing can really sell the value of what you provide to them and protecting their interests. Yeah, no, that's good. How about a uh, favorite non-real estate related hobby? What do you like doing in your free time? Man, I've had this question asked numerous times and my wife and I, we buy duplexes and we renovate. So on the weekends, we're building, you know, furniture, we're renovating uh, apartments. Um, and, and outside of that, the only outside non-real estate, non-building, non-construction thing we do is hang out on the boat up north. Um, my, my, my wife's parents have a, have a lake house two hours north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and and uh, you can catch me uh, on the boat. Uh, on the downside, I'll, I'll probably have my laptop and we're underwriting deals in the middle of the lake. <laughs> yeah, no, you got to do what you got to do. I get that. <laughs> and uh, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started? My number one tip is to take action. Don't go yeah. pay somebody for, for a mastermind. Don't go pay somebody for the knowledge that they have. Go do it. If you had $25,000, why would you go pay for a class? What is that class going to return that $25,000? They're not. You're gaining, you're gaining education. I, I think we can all agree that that's a great task, but you haven't moved forward on the investment strategy. You've invested some knowledge, but you're not going to get any return on that because you still have to come up with another $25,000 to go buy a $150,000 duplex. Right, right. So, Take action, go do it. And when you've done it, call me and talk to me about the trials and tribulations because yeah, yeah. I've probably had that same experience. That's good. That's great advice. Yeah, taking action is definitely important and it gives you so much confidence to do the next deal and the next deal and move yeah, forward and, and learn. So I love that. There, and there, there's, there's only so much hours in the day. There's only so much time as, as others have said, time is our most valuable asset. I'm going to say don't squander it reading because... <laughs> I <laughs> just not even <laughs> reading. Um, spend your time figuring it out as you do it. Right. You know, if you have $25,000 sitting in the bank, you have 50,000 sitting in the bank, you have 10,000 sitting in the bank. There is a means of putting that money to work. Now, if you're really serious about investing in real estate, you're going to take action on any deal that makes sense. And if, if that doesn't make sense, then your risk tolerance probably is a lot lower than mine. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I hear you with that. And, and Tom, if someone wanted to get a hold of you and chat with you about what you're doing and if maybe you want to invest with you, how can they do that? Uh, Instagram. It really is the resume. It's the, uh, I am on Instagram more than any other social media platform. I don't know if it was Facebook or Instagram that you and me met Dante, but uh, I'm very grateful for social media. I've gained a lot of great real estate friends from social media. So Instagram is Tom McCrossin uh, is the best way to connect with me through social media. And uh, I am literally an open book. So you want to dive deep into any deal that I have, 
I will be more than happy to share. I'm not going to share things on the open, open public market, but uh, happy to share in a private conversation. Awesome. I love it. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking some time chatting with us today. We really appreciate you bringing some knowledge on the industrial and uh, flex space, and we hope to have you on again soon. All right. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.